Hello everybody and welcome to episode 124 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters and what matters on this episode is the excitement that is building a new golf course. As most of you would know, the Seven Mile Beach project in Tasmania is both well underway and highly anticipated and today we're going to get an update from the horse's mouth or mouths as it were. There are too many guests today to do a comprehensive bio for each but most of you will be familiar with them anyway. Let's just say a quick hello to each and get underway from the left coast of America, co-host and the man responsible for us all being here today, Jeff Shackleford. Shack, this was your idea and I think it's a good one. I'm looking forward to finding out what's going on down there in Hobart. Yeah, I think it's fun to hear about a project midway, even though podcasting is not very visual. I, I, I'm excited to hear what the concept is. And then when it's all done and the rave reviews are in, we'll check back with them. Indeed. Shout out to Jubsy, who's a listener, by the way, who suggested this to both me and Clates many times in the last few months that we should be doing this. <laughs> Speaking of Clates down here in Australia, big welcome to Mike Clayton. Clates, good to have you aboard as always. Thanks, Rod. I'm in Melbourne, not in Hobart. Hobart next week for me. So I'm leaving to the boss to carry on working. <laughs> well, don't get too excited because also joining us here in Australia, uh, the second of the three partners at Clayton DeVries upon Mike DeVries. Mike, good to have you with us. Why aren't you out on a days of working? You know that the boss is right here. Well, you know, you got to do some of this other stuff too. So <laughs> I'll play in the sand later today. It's, yeah. uh, But it's good to be here. Thanks. Appreciate it. No, not at all. Back to the US, the man who's the brains behind the project, touring professional, proud Tasmanian Matt Goggin. Matt, it is always great to catch up with you. Great to see you guys. Yeah. Um, kind of disappointed we're not doing like a three or four hour live hot take podcast. But I guess this will have to do, right? We've only just started, Matt. Who knows where we'll end up? <laughs> oh, no. Don't derail it first thing. I actually do want to start with you today because you're the client in this process. Now, you're a touring player. You've played a lot of golf. You've been on a lot of golf courses. I'm assuming never during construction, certainly not as much as you have. Am I right that that's the case? And if so, how has the reality differed of building a golf course, if at all, from what your perceptions were going in? Um, I think, I've, I mean, I've learned a lot about the process and I've learned a lot about, you know, how a golf course is constructed and all the nitty gritty. But I mean, to be honest, it wasn't really, I didn't have any sort of, you know, airs or graces about my ability to have any input beyond just finding the right people and let them do their thing, make sure they get paid and get out of the way. That's sort of been my role. Um, it's been really exciting to spend so much time with the with the crew down there and see how they work and, and learn. But but to be honest, I feel like I just like to watch them work and, and let them do their thing. Yeah. I've often thought golf should be renamed easier said than done, Matt. Is it the same with building a golf course and staying out of the way? Easier said than done. Well, I did spend a, a few <laughs> hours messing around on equipment and I can honestly tell you that um, it uh, yeah it definitely takes 10,000 hours to get any good at it not not one or two Double. <laughs> like it's a real skill watch actually watching Mike work in the dozer and he you know he um, he loves his D5 um, and what he's able to do with it uh, a lot of things we think we'd use an esca- excavator there or, or how would you build that bunker and and Mike just gets in there and rips it out in you know 35 40 minutes and you've got a little pot bunker or you've got a a scraped out bunker and it's all just on the one machine and it, it sort of blows me away and then there's so much of it that you just take for granted that you don't realize it's going on um the, the blending everything in the, the the clearing the area and all the grubbing that goes on and the care that's taken to make sure you don't lose any features and then putting that all back um it's been a real it's been a real eye-opener and, and it makes you appreciate when you actually go and see other golf courses and how they're built the sort of the attention to detail that maybe you know, if someone didn't use or someone has used, and it gives you just a little bit more discerning eye, I think. 
Mike DeVries, what Matt Goggins, Goggins describing there is the way we feel when we go and watch him and Clates play golf, isn't it? Making the incredibly difficult look easy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's, um, you know, it, it is fun. And Matt, I mean, he talks about it too. It, it is interesting to see him sort of absorb all the things that we're trying to do. And he provides a lot of helpful, you know, input into that process, as every client really does. Um, I think he's trying to defer a lot, but I, that's important. We have to have those dialogues and that discussion. And and it was fun. You know, he got on a skid steer and messed around on the fifth tees. And, um, you know, I, I've since blown that up. But <laughs> sorry, Matt. <laughs> but, but it's uh, – but it, it is all part of the process. And um, I think that it's, you know, it's something every, every client and every time that Matt comes down or we talk about stuff, I think he's learning more and, you know, his, his learning curve is really, really steep. Um, but it's, you know, it's this fun process and every project starts to unfold and, and, and we see things and Clayton and I see things every time we, we go around and we make little tweaks here and there. And, um, all of all of those details matter, and all those little things matter. So it's it's you know it's really a fun part of the process. Indeed, Clayton, you kind of bridge these two, don't you? The touring pro, you've been doing this course building for a lot longer. I know you don't get on the dozers like Mike, but what Matt's describing, I'm sure, is somewhat uh, familiar to you. But in a lot of ways, all of this stuff really, in a funny way, actually doesn't have anything to do with golf, does it? Certainly not the ideas of the playing of the game. This is the this is the practical side of what's required. A bit like an architect, you know, you can design a house, but someone's got to build a foundation for it to sit on, don't they? Yeah, and I think golfers would all be amazed if they knew what was under the ground, what they were walking on that they had no idea was under the irrigation and drainage, and just what happens under the ground is as important as well. It's not as important as what happens on top of the ground, but they'd be amazed what's under there. Hmm. And, you know, it's, this is unusual in the sense that it's such crazy ground. So I often think it's a great site, but it's pretty lousy land for golf because it's oh, so explain. so wild and so crazy. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to push so much of it around to make the golf playable. So, you know, to this point, I think we've done that pretty well. And people, when they go down there, aren't going to know what we moved and what we didn't. But it's a better site than it is for golf than it is land for golf, I think. Would you say that's true, Mike, or not? Wait, wait, yeah, wait, wait. <laughs> What's that with? Say that again? I think it's a better site for golf than it is land for golf. So at St Andrews Beach, so we've all been at St Andrews Beach, there was almost no dirt moved there. It was just sow the grass, build the greens and bunkers. But that's the last thing you could do at Seven Mile Beach because the land's so choppy and there's so much movement in the sand that you've got to push so much of it around to make the golf playable. So whilst it's a great site, there's a lot of work to get it to where it. the golf is playable. I think you made sense in the end there, Clay, so even I understood yeah. that <laughs> ultimately. It, 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 it is interesting that because everybody's on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and they see this little photo and, and they make comments, oh, it's, it's amazing, it's, per it's just perfect, and they have no <laughs> idea really what they're looking at because, one, the photo is really, really small, Two, you can't see anything when it's just all sand or dirt or whatever because you can't see the detail of what's really there. Um, and and you take that and you, you think of this site is phenomenal. It's incredible. But there is some stuff that's super severe that's like too severe. You, can't, you couldn't maintain it. 
you, you couldn't actually mow the ground. So we have to we have to do things to ameliorate those issues and make sure that it all functions long term and you know is is a proper part of the you know of the day to day activity. Yeah. Shaq, that's something wanna, that people don't really think about. That's exactly right. We're going to come to Shaq about this. We're all course critics, aren't we, Jeff? We've picked up a golf club and been on a golf course. We all have ideas about how things could be done better. Uh, I know you've been through this construction process. Does it change the way you critically look at golf, other golf courses when you play them? I, mean, I think that's what Matt Goggin alluded to when he was saying you notice things at other courses after you've seen how it's actually done. Oh yeah, no, totally. You know, you, you realize when work is really good and, and, uh, when it's really awful, uh, more in terms of shaping than, than you did before. Um, you do wonder about what was there and, and what was changed. If they do a, a good job, you can't, maybe you don't wonder about those things now that I think about it because they do such a good job that you, you, uh, you know, it's when they actually over over manipulate a site, uh, like like Trump uh, Aberdeen. I, you know, it's just just flat down the middle of the fairways, but everything else is just crazy severe around the sides, uh, and you 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 can't stop thinking about how they you know just kind of over manipulated the middle part of the, the the corridor of the holes. So yeah, no, it totally changes, and uh, it's a it's a fascinating process that more golfers would. I think they'd get a kick out of a lot of people get intimidated kind of by the dirt and the dust and the big uh, equipment. But I think a lot of people would really get more enjoyment out of a course that they are going to play a lot if they'd seen the land before and then maybe seen it during construction. Um, and that's why, you know, I think it's great to encourage people to, to come out. And, and when you have a, you know, big, you know, billionaire developer, like Matt Goggin, you got to, you know, keep them happy and you want them to see everything that's going on while you're doing it. Mark DeVries. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that stuff, Jeff, because I always like to go see everybody else's work and hopefully, you know, I have a relationship with that architect or whatever because you can ask questions then because it's it's easy to be a critic. Every golfer can be a critic, right? Oh, I hated that hole because they scored a triple bogey or whatever. But it's interesting to see, you know, having been in the process and understanding building, it's like, oh, why did you guys do this? Why did you do that? Because there's a lot of reasons that you have no idea. You know, this review comes out about X golf course and and people really don't have any understanding of what happened and why this particular decision was made. And it might make total sense. And, you know, someone can easily shout it down on social media or whatever or praise it and maybe there's not even a good reason for that so it's it's interesting to like know that sort of inside it's like being the fly on the wall It'd be great to be the fly on the wall yeah. all the time right yeah you must have had that experience yeah. mike when people you read something in a magazine about a hole that you've built you've had to build a certain way for outside reasons and people say why was it built this way it should be different i imagine that happens all the time people don't know what the constraints are they only see the finished product and imagine how it could be better or different Right. Well, certainly it happens. It happens regularly, and it's not necessarily always negative. But um, when you then when you when you correct somebody on this or that, it sort of just ends the conversation because they don't they don't really know, you know. And it's nice to have a discussion. It's nice to like, oh, why'd you do this? And mm. oh, I like that, and I don't quite like that, you know. But there might be a good reason for it. Matt Goggin, has this changed your relationship with golf or the playing of the game in ways you didn't expect? It's kind of a bit the same as the first question I asked you, I suppose, but I can't imagine you can go through this process as a professional golfer and not be changed in some fundamental way in the way that you interact with the game. Um, 
Well, there's two parts of it, right? It's like as a professional golfer or someone who's, you know, trying to shoot the lowest score, I don't really take that much interest in the architecture at all. It's more about, you know, executing to your target and, you know, whether it's hitting the, the right shot and then making the putt and shooting the lowest score, that's really all you're interested in. But as far as enjoying golf, um, which is very different to competing in golf. <laughs> Maybe the opposite, yeah. someone would say, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it, it, like if I can't play um, like social golf, like I, I, I struggle to play social golf on bad golf courses. I just don't find it that engaging and I find myself switching off and not necessarily, you know, taking anything in. Yet if I, you know, do a bit of a trip or, or run up to, like I went up to Tobacco Road last year, did a few other little trips and you go out there and it's amazing. Like, you know, you, you look and you take in everything because, you know, it's interesting. While conversely, if it's, you know, um, a club I'm not that interested in playing because the architecture is kind of boring, um, you know, it, it doesn't interest me at all. So that, that's sort of like the two the, the two aspects of it. As far as professional golf, I don't, I don't, I don't think it matters. I don't, I don't think you really take it in at all. You kind of can't afford to, can you, in some ways? It's a distraction that you don't need if what you're actually trying to do is shoot the lowest score, as you say. When you first – sorry, when you first walked this land, Matt, you told us about this. You've told us I think, a couple of times, and we've heard it all on various podcasts. And it was a long time ago, and the process has taken a long time to unfold. Is there anything you saw that first time which has come to fruition just the way you pictured it? And converse, is there anything you saw that first time or in the time since that you thought that would be great? And In fact, it's a completely unworkable idea. No, I mean, it was so smothered in trees and we, we, we would wander around for hours and hours and we'd get to the really high points and you could see off into the distance like glimpses of, of the bay. And I'd be thinking, you know, all of Mike Kaiser's golf courses, you've got to get them down on the water. They've got to be able to see the water, retail golf, got to have as many holes in the water as possible. And my concern was, well, this is amazing land for golf, but maybe we're never going to get the views or maybe we'll get them on the, you know, the high point of the third third green or the fourth tee or whatever we were looking at and then when they cleared the trees off um it was stunning like there isn't a hole you don't see the water on and and you just couldn't anticipate that because it was just so thick with trees you couldn't really and you could see the edges of the dune but you just assumed there was another big dune behind there so i think that just opened up everything and um it was pretty satisfying and you know i think it'll really help for um you know, retail golf, I think, because, you know, that's part of the part of the, um, the golf courses they really enjoy as well. That revelation must have been some wonderful moments for you there over the last few months, I'd imagine, as that's opened up, Matt, and it's better than what you perhaps expected. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, and I really love taking people up to the sort of the 18th green first tee because driving in, you just have no idea it could possibly be there because you're driving on a three-kilometre dirt road, it's dead flat. And it's smothered in radiata pines. Um, there's no nice vegetation, and you have no idea that there could be possibly any sand dunes down there at all. And it is literally at the edge of where our, you know, the 18th is. So all the golfers on the other side of this dune, you drive up to there, and it's almost dead flat. And then you go up the steep little dune, and you get to the top, and then all of a sudden there's this massive reveal of the whole scale of the property. You can see the water, you can see the massive dunes, you know, that, that go for kilometres. And um, it's just quite shocking because if you grew up there or if you've lived there or if you've been there, you just have no idea that this is this close to Hobart or this land even exists. So that's sort of the exciting part. 
Clates, my favourite walk in golf is the fourth green to the fifth tee at Barn Boogle Dunes for exactly the reasons that Matt's describing there, but it sounds like this entry to Seven Mile Beach is on a bigger scale. This extraordinary revelation that's completely unexpected the first time you see it. Yeah, it's true. You get in the first tee. It's like, it's an incredible view to the point where well, I was talking to Mike about this last, last week was that you almost get immune to it because we see it every day. Well, Mike sees it every day. I see it every couple of weeks. And it's just kind of there and you, you take it for granted a bit. But for people who see it for the first time, as that walk from four to five at Bamboogle is, you know, the, the, the first time you see it, it's like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. It's, so, it yeah, yeah. genuinely makes you draw a breath in the first time, I reckon, that fall. I know that happened to me. It was like, well, wow, what, where are we going here? This is bizarre. Then you understand why the path doesn't go from the fourth green straight up to the fifth tee and goes around, which well, makes so much sense. Well, we deliberately did that because yeah. there's a much shorter way to the fourth, yeah. fifth tee from the fourth green. But you don't get the, yeah. that view when you come around the corner. So we made that walk deliberately 100, 50 or 100 yards longer than it needed to be because of that when you get but, to the – Turn in the, Let's talk about the golf course because that's all part of the retail experience as you describe it, Matt, isn't it? That that arriving and all of that's part of and particularly a journey to somewhere like Tasmania. It's been part of the success of Bumboogle Dunes. I think King Island the same is you make the pilgrimage to get there and then the effort is rewarded with something that you perhaps weren't expecting. But let's get to some of the nitty-gritty then, Clay. You mentioned that, you know, you obviously you're building a golf course. What are some of the highlights? How has the process unfolded? I know that you're one of those, as is Mike, as is your partner Frank Pont, likes to work in the field. You think you were going to do this when you first looked, you get down in the dungeon and you change it to that. How's the process been unfolding at Seven Mile Beach? Uh, wait, Clay, before you answer. Yeah. Can I ask you to go off Rod's question just one step back from that? Yeah. Could you start with uh, uh, kind of how the routing uh, came about and then how uh, what the design of each hole, kind of what you're, you guys are starting with, and then how you're allowing it to evolve to then to Rod's question? <laughs> like what's the starting place on each hole? Who's deciding that? And, and, and then uh, kind of from there. Well, from the original routing that we did 10 years ago, Mike came down and walked the site and essentially completely changed it to put 18 holes on the side of the clubhouse where the original routing only had nine. So it's a much more compact routing, and I think it's much better. Um, the Once the trees came off, it, it, it kind of changed a, a decent amount, but not crazy amount. Like we moved the fourth green 100 yards to the left which brought the fifth tee back 100 yards so it changed those holes materially we changed 13 and 14 quite a bit um but there was you know the only plan i think is i think there's a routing map mark isn't there yeah <laughs> yeah the, you know the, there's a routing there's, map there's a and, there's a there, there's now a uh, there's a skeleton yeah yeah that Lucas has in his computer yeah. I don't I never look at that though and <laughs> Tui has the um, irrigation plan but yes yeah, you know essentially we go day to day and we talk about what we're going to do and Mike gets on a dozer and moves some sand around and we look at what's there and we, and we kind of carry on and um, you know we just you know it's absolutely designing in the field to the point where we're making decisions day to day about things we're going to add and take away and um, the most fun holes probably of the whole thing are going to be six and 11 because they're the wildest land closest to the beach 
and Mike and I walked those last week and it's all about you know, knowing which parts we want to keep and which parts might stay and which parts have to go and peeling them back one stage at a time. So they're going to be really cool holes to kind of pull apart and see what we get. But we've, you know, we're, we're constantly tweaking and changing and because you can do that in sand. Mm. Yeah, much easier. Mike DeVries, is it as simple as it might seem from the outside of you might build something, you a green or a bunker or rough it out or whatever, look at it and go, no, I don't like it, trash it, start again? Yeah, well, that happens a lot. And, and further to what Clates was saying is, is once we, you know, two years ago, just before COVID hit, Matt was coming down and, and so Clay said, Hey, can you come when Matt comes? Let's, let's, let's have a fresh look at the property. And, and so for two weeks, we, the three of us, you know, we spent a lot of time on there. Um, and I didn't want to know what the other routing was. I just wanted to sort of understand the land and get a feeling for that. And so we started evolving that and sort of working that out. And, um, you know, most of that is basically from what we did in that two weeks, most of that is still intact with these adjustments. So once the trees were gone, then like Clay said, we, how could this be better? How can, and and we're constantly doing that. So the, the whole essentially is intact. But when you think about, you clear the site of trees, okay. Clearing and grubbing, grubbing is like cleaning all the debris and stuff that comes from the trees, or if you have root mat, stuff like that. So once you do all that sort of stuff, then the next process is rough shaping. So fixing anything that's too severe, shaping in bunkers, greens, giving, you know, getting those elements in place. And then you've got, you know, irrigation or drainage has got to go in types. We don't really have a drainage issue, so that's not a problem, but um, you have all these layers that go on and each of those layers does a certain amount of destruction to what you've already built. (laughs) And then you have to sort of fix that again. And it's hard to fix something exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And whether that's even appropriate or right, that's a whole other that's a whole other topic or philosophy. Um, and so we're constantly tweaking this little element or that little element. Last week, the second hole is a par three, and um, a lot of things that Clayton and I talk about, we talk about transitions a lot. About you know what's the screen to the next tee, and how does that progression help? This is a walking golf course and how a person traverses the site and how they move from point to point is really, really important. And so that it's not up and down, up and down, up and down all the time. You you know, you want to get to a level and stay on that level. And um, there was a back, back tee kind of on this little knob for the second hole, which is a uphill skyline, really cool par three. Uh, And, you had to walk another 50 yards to get to this tee. And then you had to walk back and uphill. And so it just didn't really work. And it was super difficult. And a third of the green wasn't going to be accessible because of this big dune. And, and we just decided, you know, we talked about it last week. And then over the weekend, Clayton sent me a note and said, let's take that out and let's try and, because we have other tees that we can use too. So, and so, Monday, I said, yeah, and we'll we'll build this other portion and like get more T-space there and we'll just eliminate that. And, um, you know, that's how those things constantly, and I think it's better. And, you know, don't, if you're just constantly tweaking just a little bit, a little bit, you know, you're shaving that last 5% of the, of the project and those details are really, really critical and important. 
Um, and like we're seeding the first hole today and um, the number one tee, you know, I hadn't actually shot it with an instrument to know what the, what the, um, what the slope or the pitch was. Uh, you want a little bit, you want, you know, you want like 1% of slope on a tee just to, for surface drainage in a big storm or something. And we didn't have that. And so I was, you know, it felt pretty good, but the irrigation, and I was able to adjust it and, you know, it evolved into sort of this sinewy, nice, cool, rolling little tee. And it's actually better than it was before in the concept. It looks better, feels better. Yeah. And so that we're always just trying to get a little bit more, just a, just, a, just a hair more. And to your question about, well, if you build something, you don't like it, it's sand. We can just wipe it out. Yeah. So a lot of times, uh, you know, if Kleitz is coming down, and I know he's going to be here like Tuesday or something, and and there's stuff that I'm sort of been percolating on or working on, I'll try and mash it in really, really quick just so we have something in the field to talk about and to look at. And then while he's here, I can either refine it or we can say, ah, oh, I don't really like that. Let's, let's go in this direction. Start again. And so we can, we can do things that way. And that, that's how you get a better product. And it's great to have him not looking at it every day, coming in and saying, bang, 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 and pointing things out because you sort of become numb to it. Um, and that's, and that's what Matt was saying about, you know, you're, you're like, you're there every day and how spectacular it is. And you bring, and then you bring people out here that have never been out there and they only think of seven mile as, as where the beach is on the very Western end and where people sort of access this seven mile long section of land, but they don't get out there. And it's, and if they have been, it's been covered with pine trees. So they never saw this spectacular site. And all of a sudden they're like, well, this is incredible. <laughs> so, yeah. It's going to be a revelation for Hobart as well, by the sound of it. Matt Goggin, people who've lived in Hobart their whole lives will be staggered at what they find by the sound of it when they wander in for the first time. Oh, I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, that's what we hope. Yeah. Um, it certainly exceeded my expectations of what it could have been so far, um, and I had pretty high expectations. So I think for, um, you know, and most most people don't go to Barn Bugle Dunes. They don't travel the world and see all these great golf courses. You know, most most people that'll play it probably might not have played all these great golf courses all over the world. So I think um, it will be a revelation, yeah. We'll, we'll come to some of that a little bit later. It's always struck me, Matt, that golf appeals in almost equal number to the artists and the engineers. You know, there's, there's an element for everybody in golf, the game. Feels like this golf course design and building thing in the field might be a bit the same. What Mike's laid out there is kind of the work on your swing part and then the go out and play the amazing shot part, yeah? Well, ask him uh, <laughs> what the detailing is of the seventh green. Uh, ask for a map. Say, well, what are we doing? Are we doing a, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what, what, what's the style? Because... You know, we have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know what it's going to be. And, I, and, and you know, I know Mike does, but he's not letting on. Or maybe he hasn't even thought about it yet. So it, it feels definitely the uh, a lot more creative and artistic than, um, than engineered. Um, there's no plans. I, I basically have to keep everyone at bay, you know, who wants to see plans or want to see any detail and say, well, that's not how you build golf courses. You know, it's more artistic and it's in the field, knowing full well that pl- plenty of plenty of people could offer, offer you a, a full detailed set and, you know, grading plans and this is how much we're going to take out and this is how many cubic, you know, metres of, of, um, of material that's got to get moved. But that's not how the, um, these guys work. So 
it, it, it seems more art to me. But then obviously there is the, you know, the engineering side of things, which is, and, and for a golf course, that's more like it's the transitions. It's how is the maintenance crew going to get out there? Yep. Like, what are the access tracks? How do we hide them? How, how do we give everyone, you know, free flow through the site? Because it's a public it's a public area. It's not like it's just closed off for golf. So we need to manage people getting through. And all those sorts of things become quite technical and, 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 and they also impact sometimes the golf. But you're trying to, get, you're trying to have, let um, CDP have as much free reign or, or I try and give them as much free reign as I can knowing that there are other things I have to mitigate um, and also make them aware. So I always joke with you know, Mike and Mike that one day I'm going to say no. You know, well, one day they're going to be, can we do this? Can we do that? And I'm going to be like, no, you can't. I don't care, I don't care what you want to do. It just can't happen because, um, you know, there are, you know, certain constraints. Um, but, you know, we've been pretty lucky they? with the site so far. They're practicalities, aren't they? I mean, they get in the way in every part of yeah. life, don't they? The practicalities yeah. are just there that you've got to work yeah. around them. On a serious note, that's an extraordinary amount of trust that you're placing in Mike, Mike, Lucas, CDP. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, well, I mean, it is, but it's also, it's me deferring to experts. That's sort of like, I would sooner do that than pretend that I have any expertise. Now, I do push and I prod and I do ask questions and, you know, I you know I get clates fired up with a few, you know, references and a few <laughs> a few different topics. Uh, now, we're not uh, talking topics. about live golf. Yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I told you my favourite one. My, my, my favourite one was reading C.B. McDonald's book and then, you know, getting off the plane. And I think the first thing I said to Mike is like, you know, he's, he's probably one of the most overrated, you know, <laughs> golf architects ever, you know. He started off wanting a perfect site and by the end he wanted a mud heap so he could create the McDonald's of golf courses where anyone could build it. Um, so anyway, that got us going for a while. But uh, no, but generally I just let those guys go. And I, and I think, I mean... Is it trust or is it just knowing that they're really good at what they do and just letting them do it? You don't get in the way of, you know, an artist moulding clay. Um, so why would you get in the way of these guys? Because what they're doing is moulding clay. How, how's that from the other side? It's a somewhat unique situation. This Matt being a fellow touring pro, you being a touring pro, Mike, and you both being course architects. So you're almost the the Jerry to their George and Elaine in some ways, I suppose, if you want to use a, a Seinfeld reference. So, Clates, you're probably a bit of a linchpin in all of this because for all – and you guys clearly enjoy each other's company and I'm sure you have really intense discussions and debate. You would not always – Matt is no shrinking violet. So if, he's, if he really thinks something, I'm sure he's going to put his point, uh, you know, stridently. So do you feel that, Clates? How does, does that relate? Because ultimately you're three blokes building something on the ground or four and it's – Pretty intense. I don't, think we've, I don't think we've had any intense debates. We've had interesting discussions about mm. stuff, but I don't think. I don't think That's what I mean by interesting. Like where you'd both be interested in what the others yeah, got to say. Yeah, you've, yeah. I, I don't think we've disagreed on anything to this point. I think we're all kind of on the same boat. But I mean, what I thought was interesting was what Matt was talking about social golf and how much he disliked or was not interested in social golf on bad golf courses. And if you grow up in Melbourne, it's almost unique in Australia. Where the last two weeks I've played Royal Melbourne. Metro, Portsea, Sandringham, Woodlands, St Andrews Beach. So I'm just used to playing good golf. But there are a lot of in, – in Hobart, you know, I, I wouldn't play anywhere near as much golf as I do because they're just – the golf courses aren't that interesting to play, in fairness. And it's the same in 
you know, there are a couple of courses in Perth, two or three, one in Brisbane. You know, Australia, Melbourne's such a hotbed of great golf, and now Tasmania, that it, it shows, for those of us, you know, I guess who are artists or who don't play to score but play for fun, Seven Mile Beach is going to be important because it's going to be one place that you're going to want to play golf all the time. Whereas playing golf at Royal Hobart or Tasmania or Kingston Beach or Claremont, which are the four 18-hole courses in Hobart, you know, you'd play golf, but you wouldn't play with anywhere near the passion or the same amount of golf that you would play in a city that's got lots of great golf. I'll talk about the broader implications of that soon, Shaq. I'm hogging this. This is your idea. You must have had a million questions you want to ask these guys. I just realised I've been been uh, in there doing it myself. What did you have for? Uh, what did you have in mind when you called this council? No, I well, you know, I wanted to create um, anarchy and get them all bickering <laughs> and fighting, but it doesn't sound like we're going to be able to do that. Um, but I was. I, I mean, I am curious. I, 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 Matt, I think you're you're selling yourself short. I mean, that's that's you know, you you've played some of the greatest courses in the world, and you recognize uh, a lot more than most golf professionals. Uh, so I, I am, I am struck by your ability to not want to have some final say over the, before the holes are seated. And obviously I know you're not, you, you're not there all the time. That's part of the problem. Um, but, uh, I, I think that's a fascinating component of this, that you are a, a different, uh, developer or, or project visionary. And, uh, that has to. Yeah. It'd be intriguing to you at some point to want to be able to have some say, does it not? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I think it's more that I, I don't. I mean, I I've, I've had this conversation with Clates. It's like if Pinehurst Number Two um, had never been built and it got built today, you know, and some no-name architect built it, would it be Pinehurst Number Two? Do you know what I mean? Would it be fanfared? Would it be fetid? Like. Um, is it a lot to do with that it's a Ross course or the history of it or, the, you know, the, the renovation or all that sort of stuff? Um, and you could say the same with with Royal Melbourne. Royal Melbourne's an amazing golf course, but all the sort of tenets of, you know, great retail golf, the successful courses that have been built um, more recently have been, you know, they've got to have the views and, you know, and, and the sort of all the, the specky-looking holes and all that sort of stuff. So... I kind of convinced myself that I actually don't have any idea what a good golf course is and what's going to be a successful business because you can have a great golf course, but is it a successful business? Because if it's not a successful business, it doesn't matter what you've built. It's not going to be there in five or 10 years time. It's just going to be, you know, it's going to be overgrown and, and losing money. So I think I, um, I'm sort of deferring just because I, I honestly don't think I know. And I don't think, I, don't, I mean, you can, I've read, you know, Kaiser's books and, you know, I've heard his interviews and there definitely seems to be a bit of a formula there. And, um, and, it, and obviously Mike Jr. Is, is racing that formula out really quickly at, at, um, at Sand Valley. But again, um, you know, time will tell, you know, just how successful that development is or, or any other developments. But I think we have a lot going for it because of its location and because of just how spectacular the the sand is and what the job that CDP are doing. But, um, yeah, so, sometimes I think I, I, I don't – the more good courses I've played, the less I can tell you what makes them good. Mm. That's intriguing, well, yeah, that Jack. Is, mm. <laughs> yeah, that's – yeah. Uh, well, so is the main uh, uh, marching order then to – because I, I, don't, I don't really, I'll be honest, understand the retail golfer phrase that Mike – Kaiser's uh, kind of created, and I, I, 
I, uh, so I just, I just don't understand it. Uh, I've tried, but I don't quite grasp what it means. I mean, were your marching orders to them to build something that, that, uh, was a little bit more uh, of a course that you wanted to play over and over again and, and not, um, trying to, 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 to let the site kind of blow you away and not, not let the architecture overwhelm the site. Is that kind of what I'm, um, I, I don't think I've that? really given them any sort of, um, you know, strict, you know, can do, can't do. But I think we just do it through our conversations and, and I'm just trying to, you know, probe and prod and find out why decisions are made, why decisions aren't made and just try and have a long conversation about it so I can get an understanding or maybe get them to think about, you know, a few other things. But, I mean, the walkability was a huge thing that... Um, you know, that struck me that Mike DeVries was, you know, was very big on and all the transitions. It, like the site has so many opportunities to build great golf holes. It's it's very easy just to want to make people walk up to the top of a hill, take it an amazing view, hit a, you know, fantastic elevated tee shot into some crazy mounding and do all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's not actually going to be a great golf course. It might be a collection of great golf holes. Um, and, you know, we all sort of have that, you know, like routings are a weird thing like you you know a good one when you've played it it's very hard to just stand there beforehand and say this is a good routing and this is a bad routing without actually seeing the finished golf course i mean you see it on those golf course you know golf golf club atlas and that sort of stuff people posting routings and they've all got to have their critiques and oh this should have gone here and that should have gone there but you just have you like you don't know you don't know um i think that's what always fascinated me about marion was just like how and unbelievably good routing it is for that piece of land and you couldn't think you could go any other way but i'm sure there's hundreds of different ways you could have built that golf course and you know the one that got built was probably the best version of it and, and that's sort of like what you're hoping to achieve um so yeah those sort of things are the things that have been really interesting to me and i, I can't say that just because i've played a bunch of good golf courses or i was really good at golf that i can sit there and, and tell them what to do basically because i'm learning mm. You know, as, as Mike said, my learning curve is pretty steep, even though I've, you know, played a lot of good golf courses. Goodness, what a staggering yep. attitude. Mike DeVries from a, a client, I'd imagine. I don't imagine you've had too many who've said to you, not only am I a professional golfer, played all my life, played some of this, I've got no idea what I'm looking at. You take over. That would be unusual, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, the um, to add to that, sort of, because there's so – like Matt said, there's you can turn and like you can get in the spots and turn in any direction. You go, well, that's a cool golf hole. That's a great golf. That's a great golf hole. And Clay's, you know, golf holes that aren't golf holes. He loves, you know, that's this great thing that he likes to do. And if he's not on site and and you know there was a section when it got cleaned up, you know, this is earlier in the process. And I I would just say to Lucas or something, I go. Oh, Clates is going to want to go there. He's going to, he's going to, that's a great hole. And like, yeah, it's a great hole, but it doesn't fit with the one before and the one after very well. And so those are those balance things you're trying to figure out. And, and the site's so spectacular. It doesn't matter where you're at. You're going to be like, wow, that's really cool. And you have to sort of put that aside because that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the thing. You want people to go, wow, that's an incredible golf shot. That's a really cool shot because that's going to engage them. That's going to be interesting golf. That's going to want to make them come back. Not because they went, wow, that's that's the ocean. Wow, that's the ocean. That's the ocean. That that almost sort of wears on you. And if you can get 
the proper transition and how someone experiences the site, then when they turn and they look at the ocean and they have that downhill shot, you know, drive or, you know, cool reveal or something, or you come over a, you know, over a horizon and you see something, then that becomes, that becomes the wow factor, but the golf is all still really, really good. And so if you can achieve that, I think then, then we're hitting the home run. Then, then we're really putting something together that makes people want to come back and play again and again. And to like, wow, that was really cool. I wonder what it's going to be like tomorrow. I want to come back. Yeah, to I think from, um, I guess one specific, I mean, I'll give a couple of specific, um, uh, times where it's happened. I think, um, so the eighth is, you know, par four that sort of the eighth and ninth travel along pretty similar land in, in a pretty similar direction. And there was, um, the hole was built one way and then Clates found a, you know, fantastic green site to the right. And it's like, well, this is amazing. We've got to build this one. So they build both greens. Um, and of course, in the end, now we have two greens for the hole. But the reason being is that one is a spectacular looking hole and shot, right? The other one is an equally as good a looking hole, if you like. But it then it changes the ninth hole into where instead of playing two holes in the exact same direction, the exact same distance, you now have with the long green on eight or the or the left green, it changes the ninth hole to be a bit shorter and it changes the angle. So it's kind of interesting how we've kind of built, we've kind of done a test, if you like. Well, here's the spectacular looking shot, but here's the shot that makes more sense from a routing and making the shots mix up and not just going, oh, it's a driver eight on, that's another driver eight on or whatever whatever it's going to be. And I guess the only other really thing I find myself doing is I look at how I would play the course and I, and I like the idea of, you know, really testing good players, right? I think it's important. Um, and I think there's little subtle things you can do that, um, that can, you know, make it very difficult for or exacting for a good player but, you know, a, an, an average golfer is still going to get out of there. It's, it's not going to be the an island green at TPC where, it, like, everyone just gets, you know, destroyed. It's, um, it's having a pitch shot or a shot that demands, you know, precision from a really good player but has plenty of room and space and ability for an average golfer just to walk through there with, a you know, a four and a par three or a five and a par four, and he's quite happy. Well, but for the pro golfer, it, um, it's a really difficult four. And an almost, you know, uh, almost impossible to make three without hitting like a really high quality shot. So, I mean, that's the stuff I look for. But then, you know, as I was talking to, I wrote about it the other day, when I was talking to Mike about it, he's put it, you know, much more eloquently and simple. It's like, well, we just want everyone to be engaged. You know, if you're a great player, we want you to be engaged in the shot. And if you're a terrible player, we want to keep you engaged. And the longer we can keep you engaged the longer you're going to, you know, remember the golf course and, and, and rate it highly or have a good experience. If you switch off early or we don't engage you, then um, we haven't done our job. And that's that's basically a pretty simple way of putting it, I think. The, the good player, average player thing you just outlined there just described Royal Melbourne, didn't it, Clates? That's always been my thought about yeah. Royal Melbourne is that anybody can play from anywhere, but if you really want to shoot a good score, I think you've nailed it before, Clates. You said it's the easiest course in the world to shoot 75 and the hardest course in the world to shoot 65. Well, no, I'd say it was the easiest course in the world for an 18 handicapper to shoot 90. Yeah. So as long as the greens aren't crazy fast, which they yeah. are sometimes, then the average player can bump it around there, make bogey on every hole without any trouble at all. But it's a hard course to shoot 67 yeah. if you're a pro. Yeah. Whereas 
Coolums, which is a Robert Trent Jones Junior Resort course in Queensland, is the opposite. It was when you're playing well, it was a, wasn't a hard course to shoot 68 or 67 at all. But if you're an 18 handicapper, you could shoot 120 out there. Yeah, easily. Because it was water everywhere and lost balls and just it was crazy hard for you know for a bogey player. Clates, I wanted to ask you about something that Mike DeVries kind of touched on. I come out of either Simpson or Colt, I think I read somewhere, wrote about the notion that you can't have 18 spectacular jaw-dropping holes or they all kind of, as I think you were saying, you become a bit numb to it. Not quite the right quote, but you kind of need a boring hole or a straightforward hole or things to break it up. Am I right about that? Have you read that? And is that what role does that play in? Telling us, yeah. Yeah, well, well, Simpson, Simpson. Simpson, wrote well, Simpson wrote it too. Simpson wrote about every course having a bad hole, which was probably after he a built, bad a, built a bad hole and has to justify it. <laughs> That's right. It's on um, there are no bad holes at Morfontaine or Chantilly or Fontainebleau. Um, <laughs> but Tillinghouse said that so by being exciting, I don't mean for the golfer to be subject to attacks of hysteria yeah. on, on every tee. And I think that's exactly right. You know, people get blown away, you know, get, yeah, yeah, there's way too much. We love the attack, the attack of hysteria on every tee, which is go to the high point and, and play the spectacular shot down the hill. When you can do with, you know, some holes that are, that are subtle and understated, but still very good in their own way. Mm. Yeah, good quality golf holes. Mike DeVries, something I wanted to ask you about that Matt touched on earlier. Your very first thought when you walk the site is walkability. What are some of the other things that nobody else would ever think about, but you as the course designer and construction person is at top of your mind? I mean, everybody who thinks that they know about golf walks on goes, where's the most spectacular par three? Where's the great tee shot? Clearly, you're thinking, uh, that's all there. I've got to get people around this course on foot. What's the best way to do that? What are some of the other underthought I was hoping aspects? it was budget. Was it budget? <laughs> <laughs> Mike didn't realise that's always an issue. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. What are some of those other? It probably comes under that thing about detail and the stuff that you're doing it right if people don't notice it. I suppose. Yeah, it's a good question. That's it's hard to answer. Um, I feel strongly that a golf course, even if you're taking a golf cart or you're accommodating golf carts. That it needs to be a golf course still needs to be walkable. That's how the game started. That's the best way of experiencing the game. That's the best way of experiencing the land that you're on. Whether that's, you know, a, a parkland course, a links course, a mountain course, whatever. Um, if you think about Cascades in in Virginia, you know, that's a it's tucked in the mountains. It's not necessarily the easiest walk in the world, but it's not the worst either. I mean, it's set up well in how they transition. You got to cross a road, take a tunnel under a road. You got to cross a stream. You got to you got to do a zillion different things there to make that thing work. But it does work. Um, and so, though, I think that's always foremost is trying to figure out feeling the land and feeling how can we how can we transition that land. So, if there's this great spectacular view, which you know, the one T we're standing at, you know, near the clubhouse and it's this spectacular view and you see over a good majority of, of the golf course and you look in the direction of the hole and pass that hole on more high ground, even though the first green is down, it's a, it's this spectacular, you know, opening tee shot where you're hitting downhill to this big wide fairway and kind of gently go up to the green again, but it's not up at the higher elevation. Then you have to work 
two to three to get back to the high ground and three and four are on the high ground. And we stayed there purposely. And that was one of the reasons that we shifted the fourth, the fourth green, because the fourth was going back down sort of midway on the dunes. And it made more sense to stay up there and to bring in that, the big views and all that drama to, and before going back down and then going right to the ocean. So getting those sequences in, not just, not just a singular hole or Simpsons thing, you know, one bad hole or et cetera, whatever is that how do those sequences of holes go together? So how do you think about, you know, one to two, two to three, et cetera, all the way around, because if you have bad transitions back to that, back to that word, you, you have a bad progression and you don't really get to experience the things you want to experience. So it's not like every hole has to, the experience has to be wild glamor, wild glamor. It'd be nice to have those sort of peaks happen variously throughout the round. Or if you're paying attention to a certain thing or you're waiting for your partner to hit and you, know, you turn and you look and you take in some of the scenery, then you might start to see some things that are much subtler and that you're not probably, you know, unless you're a very tuned in and looking at, at the golf course in that sort of way, you're probably not going to experience that on the first play. And so just having the spectacle, wow, this is fantastic. What a, what a great experience. That's great. But the next time they come back, we want them to see a bit more and, you know, to build on that. And those great courses, no matter where they are in the world, those top 20, top 50, whatever courses, those are courses where you can constantly add to your knowledge of those. Marion's a great example that, you know, there's so many little things at Marion that you see and experience every time that you're there. Um, you know, you can build on it. I haven't been there that much, but, you know, you, you see a little bit more and you experience a little bit more. And um, that's a that's that's what we're trying to achieve, I guess. You know, we want people to come back and to learn more and see more and experience more. And to that want to come back, which plugs directly into something else I was going to ask you about. You mentioned it's got to be a successful business at the end of all this. Not so much related to what Mike's talking about. We might come to some of that. How much do you show people during construction? How do you manage that process? You need to keep excitement and awareness about the course, don't you? But by the same token, you don't want to walk into your first date nude, do you? There's got to be something that's going to be uh, left. That's why, that's, why, that's why we're going to have to ban Clayton's phone when he gets down there. <laughs> It's <laughs> an interesting concept, isn't it? But ha has that something you've given much thought to? Because oh, you must be getting constant messages. Yes. From people, oh, show us more photos. We want to see some videos. Where's the drone footage? We want to see what's going on. There's balance there, is there? Yeah, right? I'm trying to show as little as possible um, or not give too much away, but also keep people engaged. Because um, the early adopters are the ones that are going to drive the project. I mean, they're the ones that are going to want to be there on the first week. They're the ones that are going to talk about it on social media. They're the ones that are going to hype it up for you. Um, and that's really important as far as, you know, bringing on more business and all that sort of stuff. So I also, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want people to see the routing map. I don't want them to have an idea of where it goes. There's, there's quite a lot of holes. I, I don't mind showing sort of early photos of some of the holes, but once we start getting grasses and grassing and all that sort of stuff and you can really start to frame out some of the holes and know what they're going to look like, I think I'll probably just show the same few holes and show their progression. But I, I, I think it's really important to have kind of like, you know, when the Masters, 
used to not show the front nine and yeah. we had no idea what was going on and now you watch it and it's kind of like oh okay that, that's cool but there was something about not knowing yep. anything about it that um that was so more mysterious especially if you got a chance to go and I, and I didn't before before that but i'm sure it must have been amazing to go there and be like oh i know what the first nine holes at augusta look like yeah um so i mean that that's sort of something we're, we're trying to achieve where you know i, I want people to be surprised I, like there's a couple of holes that have potential to be really quirky and really interesting and i just love people to have no idea or or know what to expect and then just to get on that team be like wow i was not expecting this yeah because the other thing that mike derees touched on there was about that learning a bit more each time you want a golf course that people want to come back to don't you there was a lot of talk early on in Barmbugle Dunes' time about, you know, but will people keep going back? And I think Barmbugle Dunes does a great job, obviously, with the second course as well. You do want to go back because you do feel like every time you play both of those courses there, you learn and see something you didn't see the previous time. So you can continue to appreciate it. You don't get bored with them. So that's that, yeah, the and next that's important sort of, element. It's sort of yeah. going back to um, Jeff's point a little earlier about not, sort of like the, the retail golfer, if you like, and not really understanding, you know, what that is. But, and, but I think... What you just said is is what retail golf is in respect that someone might only ever play this course once. They might come from somewhere in the world. They might come from they're spending a lot of money. They you know a lot of time um, with the goal of playing this one one great golf course once. So you know you just can't. You've got to roll out a great experience all the way through. And and I think that's what a retail golfer is. Um, for the people that come back all the time, that's sort of more like your members. Do you know what I mean? They're the people that have, that have see the course as their own. Um, and, and that's sort of a, a slightly – they probably don't care as much about, you know, the entrance experience or, you know, how we're going to bring them through the building to the first tee and, and all these sorts of things. Um, they just want to go out there because they find the golf course fun and engaging and hopefully affordable. And, you know, they're just going to go around as many times as they want because they love being there. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the – having repeat – I mean, that's what Richard at Barn Bugle Dunes does an amazing job of. And, it, and And I don't think it's necessarily the golf courses, right? I don't think it's necessarily because the courses are so good, people just want to come back all the time. There's, there's a secret sauce there, and it's, the, it's the, the, the very local feel. It's a very Australian feel. It's affordable. But, I mean, you know – you know, if you could bottle it and sell it, he would, I'm sure. Because I, I know, you know, some of the guys from New Zealand, you know, with Cape Kidnappers or, you know, um, all that sort of stuff would would ask Richard to come down and have a look and, like, what do we do? How can we make it, you know, more profitable and all these sorts of things? Because I think he has a um, an amazing business there. And, and I don't think it's just solely because the golf courses are good. You know, you're absolutely right. And part of it, is it not, is the fact that you wander into the clubhouse half the time and there is Richard. Sitting having breakfast or sitting having coffee and talking to people. In fact, he went and got me an iPhone cable the last time I was there because I lost mine. They're, they're the intangibles, aren't they, Matt? That you can't buy. You're right, the, but the courses do play their part. If they were two awful golf courses, you wouldn't go back there just to see Richard Sattler. It's the combination of the two. So I suppose it's what it is is a pack. Hundred percent. But 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 to your point about you might play them once. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like why do people come back? Um, if it's just a matter of ticking a box on your you know world top one hundred. Um, you know, there's plenty of courses you could say, you know, that, that probably have that experience for a lot of people. But being the one where it's like, no, we're going to go there every year. I mean, I'm not sure people go to Pebble Beach every year. I mean, it's expensive. You couldn't afford to. It's, could you? it's fine. Um, you know, 
the golf courses, you know, it is what it is. Um, but I don't think it's anywhere near as much fun as um, as Barn Bugle Dunes is going back every year. Just because, just yeah. as you say, because of it, you can afford it and all that sort of stuff. Well, they haven't got Roscoe, have they, at Pebble Beach, Matt? So well, you, you already start one down. <laughs> and, you can, and you can never go to Pebble Beach when there are 50 people playing the golf course or 60 people playing no, the golf course. That's true. Which, if you go to Barnboogle in July, which is the best time to go because it's the best weather in Tasmania, and there's never anyone there because everyone from the mainland assumes it's terrible weather. But, Sha- Shaq, you wrote a great article in McKellar this month talking about the old course and why, why – let me quote this here – the old course remains the most complex and endlessly unpredictable piece of golf architecture – on a planet of 39,000 golf courses. Oh, nice. So you want to flesh that one out a bit about why that's still the best and most interesting course in the game? And, you know, essentially it was a criticism of, of architects in that why hasn't anyone matched this genius since? So if- yeah, no, I, that's ex- it, was, it was that because it's so bizarre that this – course that was there and then widened out by tom morris and modified by the strats uh, probably and other people but it's so i mean it still tested the best players in the world they had to put some pins on weird spots and tees on the other courses but it still made them f- deal with some of the same decisions and i guess that's where i'm i was trying with that piece and uh, trying to and and curious. That's why I asked. I guess early on, where you guys start with uh, on these holes, if you start at a place where you're trying to, you, you have something strategic mapped out, but then of course it just gets blown up because things get exposed and you somebody or somebody we know. I mean, some of the best things. I'm sure Mike can can attest to this. Some of the best things happen by accident um, or some weird little somebody creates a track somewhere and it, you go, wow, you smooth that out. That's a cool feature. But um, yeah, I was just trying to get at the, the point that it's a little embarrassing how uh, little mystery there is and depth to, a, to, to most holes that are, that are built today. There's usually one way to play them well. And, and if you're lucky that the architect did that and created something strategic where there is actually a risk and a reward and a, uh, and all that, the old course, it just has it, in spades, partly the wind, which was my other curiosity about your site. You know, the uh, we talked about it on the last show. Matt Griffin was was. Uh, I mean, I literally disappeared for fifteen minutes, and the course of his round was completely changed by a wind direction. You know, it dropped ten degrees, and the wind direction shifted as he's coming in, and the yeah, just completely changed everything that he needed to be thinking about strategically trying to make the cut, and it was cruel, but. Um, uh, you know, not not many courses have that. I mean, obviously, every course is affected with a wind change, but not the way the old course is, where it's just it's it's almost delicate in the way it, it uh, manipulates your your sorry your attack plan uh, with the slightest little bit of of change. So anyway, the piece was yeah, just kind of a in a way calling out architects, uh, you know, following up on McKenzie and Thomas who thought they were just sort of at the beginning and that people would create these far more intricate designs going forward. Mike DeFries, defend the profession, quick. (laughs) Uh, I think all your points are really valid, Jeff, and I think the thing that's that's interesting is that it's it's this randomness, right, that there wasn't a formula for it, and people want to apply it. Humans were always trying to fix things, and – 
Mackenzie's great quote was, you know, you want a great green, well, hire the village idiot and tell them to make it flat because it's not going to be. And, and you're going to have all kinds of interesting things that don't meet any sort of parameters. And so we're talking about that stuff all the time, you know, okay, well, there's this shot that, and to go back to how do you, how do we try and engage golfers of any level and give them opportunities or decisions to make on the drive on the second shot, third shot, fourth, or how many of shots they have to get there. And what, are, what are they thinking about? So the scratch player, you know, the high level player, which, you know, Matt, um, is thinking about in, in his talk before on the 15th hole. It's a short par five and you can hit it in two, but your second shot's probably going to be blind over this big sand hill that we have there. And there's a big sweep out to the left that allows for um, golfers to, you know, that don't quite hit a good drive, can't carry that section because they don't have to carry it completely. It's 80 yards you know, they can hit it 80 yards short of the green or 100 yards short of the green and, and still be safe over that. But it gives them this way to get around, and then there's all sort of random things that they have to think about over there. And if they get a weird bounce because it's fescue and we've got sand, fest, you know, fescue, hard, fast turf, the ball is going to move and it's going to give some unexpected things. So being able – a golfer that can accept that and figure out what they need to do for the next shot, that's going to be – exciting and interesting golf. I think that's what that's what St. Andrews does really, really well because all of a sudden you get this weird bounce and it goes over here and you have a completely different shot that you were intending maybe to try and do. So you challenge golfers that way and, and we talk about that a lot. You know, how how is this going to affect, you know, Grandma Moses and how is this going to affect Matt? How is this going to affect just the average regular bogey player? And some of that can help or hurt any of those any of those players and, and that that ends up being good design but like it and to talk about the wind you asked about the wind there we have sort of two main winds that come from the southwest and the northwest those are the primary comes from other directions but in, and it doesn't blow as hard as it does at at barnbool or wickham or even the mornington peninsula in, in melbourne which is really really blowy too off the bass Strait. we're we're subtler in that and and the land moves a lot more. There's a there's this crescent of, of dune land is a really wide sweeping berm. So we have holes going all different directions, not just back and forth. And there's there's little changes there, and that's going to be interesting to see how that works during play. Because I don't, you know, we're looking at that, but it's hard to say how is that how is that wind going to affect this hole and that hole all the time and. Um, I think there'll be some subtleties there that will make some things more interesting or more predictable, depending on how you're looking at it or your shot shape. How about, how about pin or hole locations? I mean, that, that was kind of um, eye opening again for me at the open, just seeing the, the, how much that can, I mean, they, again, the way they oh, tuck them too much, it, it exposed in a way uh, how, how a whole location can just change so much in the way a player thinks um, they were taking away some of those options, which was a bummer, but, but how much are you guys in the field? Cause I don't think you're restricted, right? By USGA greens, you're building, <laughs> you're building sand greens, right? Yeah. Or yeah. green plans. We're not restricted by them either. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It doesn't sound like it. No, no. Uh, yeah, how some much of are that- you doing that? 
Yeah, with holes. Well, yeah, that that stuff changes too. You know, as they it evolves, and it's it's not necessarily hard. This is the design, and then we're only strictly. It's an evolution, and that evolves into hey, we need some more space here. We need we want to try this shot. You know, in case somebody's over here, how would they how would they play that? And they can play it conservatively, or they can play it aggressively. And they and but if they play it aggressively and they miss, you know, that's that precision that Matt's talking about. So guy gets here, he's got to hit a great shot. If he doesn't hit a great shot, he's taken two or three more because he put himself in that position. So something happens, people of various abilities have the opportunity to try something or not try something or play conservatively. And so I think that that's just good design to try and give people that opportunity that there's not only one directive of how to play it. Or we're not setting up, we're not setting up holes. Correct me if I'm wrong, Clates, but we're not setting up holes like this is the optimal way to play the hole because, like you say, the wind might change, or you know, well that might work for Matt, but then Lucas might think of it in a different way, and they're both top level players. You know, he like, well, I want to, I want to, I want to hit this shot, and so can we give them that opportunity? Plus, I think there are so many pretty big greens there that. The shot to the front right pin at 13 is completely different from the shot to the back left pin. And there are a bunch of greens where um, where the pin is cut completely changes one, where you might drive it, and two, the shot you're going to play to the green. So, you know, going back to golf pros, I think golf pros, if you polled most golf pros, they would generally prefer to, if they were good iron players, to play to small greens because they think that small greens award good play. But you know, you almost don't need pin placements on small greens because it doesn't change the shot you're going to hit. But with bigger greens, there's the opportunity to completely change the second shot depending on where the pin's cut. Which is small tough. targets, a large, a large target, but smaller individual targets within yeah. those. So with bigger greens, where you have to be precise in, in a different way, maybe. Yeah. And your recovery shots then also. If you miss that shot, your recovery shots have other options or, or you know, and the, and for the regular golfer who's just trying to get around and enjoying the day, they can, you know, they can just bang the putter up this close him on bank or they can they can bump it there with their seven iron. They, they can do any different number of things. They're probably still going to take three shots to get down if they're off the green. You know, that'd be a good result for them, and that's not necessarily bad. But that really good player, you know, he's – He's got to get it up and down. Otherwise, he's he's losing his round or his match or in the tournament. Matt Goggin, what's engaging your mind more about this project, if it's even a fair question to ask and maybe it's not answerable, but trying to make all of this fit into the big business picture, which is kind of your responsibility, or the golf elements <laughs> of it and, uh, you know, what is the seventh green going to look like kind of idea? Yeah, I mean, it's you just have a lot of balls in the air, you know, things you're trying yeah. to juggle. It's the um, it's the, the the ability to scale the project and get the approvals for a second golf course. Um, there's all that sort of stuff. It's the, um, you know, a lot of the infrastructure that's got to come in there, um, whether it's uh, electrical or water mains for the clubhouse. Um you know, we were having to relocate a couple of buildings, so that requires um, new DAs and all those these sorts of processes. So I spent a lot of time working on that and then trying to kind of bridge between 
um, the civil construction, the, the the civil architecture, if you like, and then the golf course build, and making sure that um, everyone's sort of on the same team, um, which we've been lucky. Like um, you know, uh, Maria Gigney, who's been doing the, the buildings, like she gets it, she understands, um, and and she wants to have as light a touch as possible. And sort of stay out of the golfer's way, and and I think also Mike and Mike are very sympathetic to what I'm trying to achieve with um, the buildings and the roads and the access and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, so you're sort of really dealing across the three the three parameters, right? It's it, it's further approvals and it's dealing with government, it's dealing with local government, it's dealing with your neighbours, um, and it's dealing with you know public inquiries about the project. Then it's um, it's dealing with the further design on the on the civil and the infrastructure side, and then it's you know where the the real passion for me is obviously seeing the golf course come alive. But you know I've got to make sure all these other things happen um, so they can do their job as well. Are you enjoying it? Because of course none of that, I would imagine, has touring professional golf really prepared you for in any way. I would imagine the first DA you came across in your life was when you started this process. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, do I enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoy it, but it's incredibly um, it's Jeez. it's incredibly frustrating, and it's not for um, it's not for someone who gives up easily. Put it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, you're always constantly trying to work the angle, or, or, or trying to appease people, or trying to educate people on like, do you understand how amazing this site is? Do you understand that a golf course can't just be built anywhere? Do you understand the economic impact this could have for Hobart? Do you understand the tens of thousands of visitors are going to be here? What an amazing use of public land it is versus what it's being used for now. And you're always bumping up against people who have never been down there, don't know golf, um, think it's some pristine beach you're doing something to and we're, we're nowhere near the beach and you know the area is an environmental disaster zone full of weeds, full of um, introduced species, you know, the, you know, what we're doing is actually returning it back to what it should be with native grasses, giving more coverage for shorebirds and nesting birds. And, you know, the typical thing what will happen is we'll build the golf course. It'll be amazing. All the flora and fauna will come back in and then people will be like saying, well, you can't do that because look at the flora and fauna here. And it's like, well, we created it. Do you know what I mean? But they're the sort of things I find very frustrating. Um, so that's why I'm trying to get as many people to go down there um, whether it's stakeholders um, or whether it's just decision makers or even just local people, just just to show them what we've done and show them um, that it's going to be spectacular um, for tourism. It's going to be spectacular for opening up public access. It's going to be it's going to be great returning some areas. I mean, the whole area is a you know smothered in introduced species, radiata pine. We've done our bit to clean this bit off. It'd be great if there was no radiator pines down there at all. But there are so many net positives out of this development. But you're always running into the NIMBYs or the the people that just find it it's way easier to say no and carry on than it is to say yes and put a little skin in the game. So that's a bit I found frustrating. I think, Matt, anybody who knows you or has watched you play golf, and you'd probably admit yourself that patience hasn't been your greatest virtue on the golf course necessarily – how are you coping with something that must be really pushing all of your buttons very, very yeah, hard? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, m- maybe you just mature out of 
Is that what happened? Maybe I tried to do this when there was 20, I would have, you know. I think, you, I, it. I think you're driven. I think you've got a belief in something much bigger than just this being about yeah. you. That's what I feel like, that you're doing this. Yeah, 100%. It has always been. Once we got the, the golf, like the, the original um, iteration was um, the golf course was going to be for charity and then the housing development was going to pay for it um, and to get investors to basically give me the golf course so I could run it as a charity for um, local scholarships and, and all that sort of stuff. But when that didn't happen... Um, and we didn't get the housing, and then, but I, I was still stunned we got the golf course. I mean, I was still stunned that we're gonna we could do this because, and, and then it became this has to be done. I mean, and that's really what's happened is like I just I can't let these I couldn't let these permits um, lapse. I had to get substantial commencement, which we did do, which was really important a couple of years ago, and um, it, it just seems to me like it would be a huge opportunity lost. Um, not just for you know Hobart um, and the potential economic development, but for um, for Australian golf because I think it really has the potential to be that good. Um, and you know, building on the success of Barn Bugle Dunes and and Cape Wickham, I really think Tassie will rival anywhere in the world. You know, we're we going to go to Scotland or we're we going to go to Tasmania and, and Melbourne to play golf. I, I think it has that opportunity, and you, and you just we're getting to that critical mass where one or two more projects. That are successful and are of the same quality will be a huge tipping point for um, for international tourists um, coming to Australia for golf. In a, the sorry, the in perseverance a, of you know of Matt in this process, he started doing this. Was dreaming about this when he was a kid, and just you know, why is that? Why is this happening? Why is Royal Hobart over here when there's this great land here? But but you know, beyond that, his perseverance through this process, which is when you're dealing with any sort of governmental agency it's difficult. It's, it is really, really difficult. And, um, without that, you know, this would never happen. And to, to see this evolve and, you know, come to fruition finally is, you know, you know, I've only been involved with it for, you know, a little over two years and Clates has, you know, been at Matt's side for 10 and, um, you know, it's really satisfying for me, but for them, it's that I can't, I just, I can't imagine how how cool that is. That really isn't a great thing that 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 they're giving to golf and to Hobart in general. Clates, in a world that's pretty cynical, particularly in an area like this, golf course development's not a small money project. It must be refreshing to see a golf course being built for all of the right reasons, which is my feeling about this. Others might have other opinions, but I feel like this is being built for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's to give Hobart a great course and. Obviously, Bumbergle's in the north, and Hobart should have a great course. Every city should have a great golf course. Yes. And Melbourne's got an overabundance of them. Adelaide's got some. Um, but Hobart deserves to have a great golf course. And, and Tasmania is going to own top-level public golf in Australia easily because it, it'll have four or five courses inside the top 100 in the world. And, and all four, we're talking about Cape Kidnappers before and, you know, Julian Robinson saying to his staff, this is Richard Sattler from Barnburgle, he's got something we don't have, customers. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully put. Which was solely the, the result of the way Julian priced Cape Kidnappers. It Very was, much, yeah. You know, it's six or $700 a round or whatever it is. But Barnburgle at $125 and 150 to play all day is crazy green fee 
given what you're paying in Britain and America and around the world for golf courses that, golf courses that most of them, which aren't as good. So, you know, the pricing is important, but it's important for a capital city in any country in the world to have a great golf course, I think. And It's uncivilised not to, isn't it, Clates? Well, <laughs> is that you know. the, I, I think I tend to agree that that does uh, does make some sense. Just back to, and I'll, I'll finish up with this, I think we might have lost Shaq for the moment, but uh, Matt, just in terms of the business, Clates has been happily giving away free access to the golf course to every junior in Tasmania, anybody who wants to come down and practice and all the rest of it. On that side of it, once it is built and the vision is realised, that's in some ways just the beginning, I suppose. You told us once on the Good Good podcast that you envisage a clubhouse where people can tie their horses up outside. Are all of those things still in play is that what and what do you see yeah yeah no absolutely i mean i I've always seen the area as an underutilized public asset and i think golf is just one part of it i think it can be probably one of the best parts of it but i mean it's a beautiful place to go for a walk and there's no trails um it's a long way in like as i said we're a three kilometer drive in from the end of the road um so most people don't get that far down um there's very small average beach access um, it's a beautiful beach and um, it should be enjoyed by all. And being able to get down there, um, whether it's, you know, riding a horse or riding your bike. I mean, it's funny, like our road's been finished and, and the locals love it because it's a, it's a perfect 3K or, you know, if you go for a run, you run three kilometres in and walk back or you can do a 5K if you go halfway in and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it actually gets quite a lot of traffic from people just because there, there was no access. I mean, it was sandy trails and, and, and that was sort of, that was sort of useless. So that's sort of been the key driver. Um, now, for me personally, um, you know, we all got pretty excited around the driving range just because all the, the practice facility, because I just see that as an opportunity. Like, there is nowhere good to practice um, in, 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 in Hobart or, or in Tassie. There's no good practice fairways. There's no good practice facilities. There's a couple of paddocks that, you know, masquerade as, um, as practice facilities. But... That's where I got really excited was being oh, having been to you know some of the best practice facilities in the world and we're building one anyway we have all the equipment there you know why don't we do this um, so we did so we have built an amazing practice fairway and I do see it as a great opportunity for beginners and even our elite squads and for the kids that want to go on and you know take the game more seriously or represent Australia or the state or, or go on and be professionals it'll be a home for them. I want them to be there and I want them to be able to practice and play together and I don't want it to be a financial burden. If that's something I can give back through the, the business being successful, I'm determined to do that because I just didn't have that um, when I was a kid. Tasmania's a bit like, like as Australia is to the rest of the world, we're a long way from I think Tasmania is that again, isn't it, from Australia in so many ways, Matt? You know, so under, not underdeveloped, but we, we kind of ignore Tasmania. We forget Tasmania and that, that you, as you know, growing up as well, you're probably. I'm thinking of maybe two touring pros I can think of that have come out of Tasmania. You'd be the most successful by some considerable margin, and uh, that would be partly due to some of the things you've pointed to there. I would think just lack of access. Yeah, I mean, I look back, um, and if I really think of where I came from, and you know, getting to the level I got to, it's 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 a you know, it's a bit of a miracle, really. Like it's a bit ridiculous. Um, there's no coaching. Uh, there wasn't when I was a kid. There, were, there was hardly any other juniors to play with. Um, I just I just got through at a very lucky time when the AIS was just kicking off, 
and I had sort of the right attitude towards it where I saw it as just this amazing opportunity to get coaching and, and just to, to drink it all in. Well, I know some of the guys that came from the other states, you know, they probably felt like, well, I'd sooner be doing this at home. Why am I doing this in Victoria? I'm from Queensland. You know, I've got my coach. I've got my course. I've got my awesome facility. Why am I doing this at Sandringham Driving Range, you know? Um, because, and, you know, since there really hasn't been anyone come out of Tassie either. So, you know, it, it's a little bit more, you know, a lot of luck and a lot of timing um, than it was any sort of plan. And, and I don't think there's been any plan since. And um, hopefully we'll be able to do our little bit because, you know, it would be great to have some, you know, some great kids and get introduced to the game and have some, you know, more professionals and people for them to aspire to be like. Nobody achieves any success in life at whatever level without the magic word that Mike DeVries mentioned before, I reckon, Matt, and that's perseverance. And without you've certainly got that. There's no question. Nobody plays professional golf without it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Even Tiger Woods doesn't yeah. get, you know, nobody gets it handed to them in professional golf. So there's no sort of question about that. Fantastic stuff. Last uh, thing to finish up. Have we got, I know opening dates can be difficult. We're talking about a living, breathing organism, a golf course. You I imagine you've got a, an idea in mind of when you'd like to open and how will that process unfold? This is also for you, Matt. Um, we're looking for playing some golf in the end of next year, you know, December. Um, a lot of it's got to do with as long as we can keep the, um, you know, the feed, I mean the feed, the, the seed supply, the sprinkler head supply, all those sorts of things that, you know, you think you've got them and then all of a sudden they're delayed a month and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That'll, that'll be the sort of things that will, will impact that. Um, and just having good weather and, Hopefully Mike will uh, get off this podcast and get back out there on the toes instead of messing around doing this. Otherwise, we're not opening in December. Yeah. So yeah. Last last podcast you'll be appearing on DeVries until at least December next year, the way things are looking at the moment. Uh, it's been fantastic. Clates, DeVries, a couple of final thoughts from you. Clates, anything that I missed in all of that? Uh, no, it was, I think we covered it all, really. It's, it's, I'm looking forward to getting back next week and seeing the progress. And Matt's here, I think, at the end of the month. And so it'll be... More fun for him to see because he's been away for a little longer than we have, but that's no, a cool place for sure. Fabulous. And Mike DeVries, just uh, to finish up from you earlier, I think you moved your family here, did you not, when you were doing Bamboo? Have you done that again or are you? Uh, for Wickham? Yes, um, for Wickham, sorry. Yeah, well, my kids were younger then. My kids are 23 and 28 now, so they're, they're out of the house and um, they love they, they love Tassie, though. They loved being on King Island. That was a really amazing, you know, just. The projects is great too, but the, the family experience was yeah. was really phenomenal uh, for them. And uh, so, uh, but Annie was she was down. She came down with me in December, and she went back for some family stuff. Um, and she's just recently gotten back uh, at the end of last week. So she's so she's back down um, in Hobart with me, which is good. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a long journey, but it's well it's well worth it. We just we love Tassie. Hobart's an amazing city, and um, you know, I'm, I joke about it, you know, because I'm not necessarily you know, a lot of people in in the north of the U.S. You know, they go south, they go to Florida, they go to <laughs> they go to the Southwest or whatever for the winter, and uh, they call them snowbirds. And um, you know, our idea is to go way south. If we're going to go south, we're going to go to Tassie, <laughs> and we're going to I'm going to come here and play golf, you know, and, and enjoy it because the weather really is phenomenal. It's great down here, and it's a great city, and great food and people and, yeah. um, you know all, all that stuff is really fantastic so i think you're all you're all part of something bigger in the golf context i think as a golf consumer i've got no 
skills in any of the areas that you guys do as a golf consumer you've been part of something much bigger and important and who knows how we'll look back at this period in golf history and golf course design and construction but i don't think there's any doubt that uh, your three names will crop up more than once it's been great to catch uh, all of you today jeff's already left it so he had an appointment that he had to get to so we missed him uh, missed him uh, saying goodbye but good on him for convening this thanks very much and we'll see you all again here next time here on the state of the game state of the game is a talk and golf production theme music writer's retreat provided by lloyd cole visit www.lloydcole.com for more information for more golf podcasts log on to www.talkandgolf.com